Seth Godin is a writer, speaker, and entrepreneur. He's the author of many books, including The Dip and most recently, What to Do When It's Your Turn. Seth, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Well, it's a pleasure. And I have to tell you that my uh, software engineering professors at Tufts are rolling over in their grave at the thought (laughs) that I'm on something called Software Engineering Daily. Well, yeah, and I think uh, one reason behind that might be that when you went to college, you had this unique strategy where you took classes in a bunch of different disciplines, and you actually tried to get the minimum grade that allowed you to graduate with both computer science and philosophy degrees. So I'm curious how that variety of subjects and pursuits made you uh, into a different person than maybe other computer science students. Oh, it was it was certainly one of the best academic decisions I have ever made, and I commend it to everyone. Because the fact is that you almost never use the stuff you technically learned in college when you get to work. That if you think about the next time you drive to work over a bridge, you better hope that the person who designed that bridge wasn't using skills that they honed (laughs) in undergrad, right? That what happens is college is a badge that gets us a job, and then we're basically an apprentice for a few years before we're producing significant work. And so what I learned in college was how to think broadly and to make connections. Uh, Instead of taking four courses a semester, I took six. And instead of taking courses where I was going deeper and deeper and deeper, I was doing everything I could to go wide. And it turns out that's the way life works, at least for someone like me, in that I do my best work when I'm connecting things that don't seem connected. And I started that habit when I was in college. Okay. And speaking about computer science specifically, though, were there any, I mean, a lot of your books talk about these cultural myths that we encounter. Were there any myths that you felt were propagated in the computer science curriculum? Uh, You know, let's be clear. In 1980, computer science was not what computer science is now. Uh, I was certainly, I mean, it was all there. We weren't using steam engines. And, you know, I was taking courses in uh, artificial intelligence. When I got to Stanford, I took a PhD course with Doug Lanott in AI. So the seeds were certainly present. But remember that the Apple II was all we had. The PC uh, was right around the corner. The Mac didn't launch till 84. So mostly what you were taught was that computer science got done by people in shiny, clean rooms, not by everyone. And that what you also were taught was that basically the computer was a giant furnace and your job was to shovel coal into it. And the thought that it was going to be widely used, ubiquitous, uh, democratic, open to anyone who could type was completely alien to everybody there. Um, The other thing that I point out to people who... You know, I, I spent a fair amount of time with teenagers who were uh, seeking to make an impact in the world. Studying computer science in college is not the best way to become a computer programmer for a living. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, computer science is a, in a rigorous academic art form that has a history, that has a culture, that is not designed to make JavaScript apps that hack your way to convert CSV vials to something else useful. It is an understanding of the, you know, the yield of a bubble sort versus something else. And um, if you want to program for a living, the best way to do that is to program and then to program some more. 
Uh, and I think that we need architects to go to architect school. It's not clear to me that most people who program for a living, I'm leaving out the people who are doing deep theory at Google, uh, need to understand for four years all about what happened before and how assembly language works and things swapping in and out of the CPU. But I might be in the minority on that one. Well, no, so I think I kind of agree with you on that because my experience in college was actually that this focus on theory over practice was kind of counterproductive. And I feel like if you if you if if the professors would have focused more on practice and actually hacking things together and writing JavaScript, uh, you know, ran, random JavaScript apps rather than proving things, um, I feel like theory falls from the practice, but the converse is not necessarily true. Exactly. So I, felt like it was, I felt like it was counterproductive. Not only that, but software engineering is fundamentally different than software. And uh, I love the fact that you've got the word engineering in there. When you, you know, I've been in organizations that are spending millions of dollars a month on programming, and the people involved don't know what the mythical man month is. Mm. And that's a crime. It's a crime to not have learned from Joel Spolsky. It's a crime to not understand the system's ramifications, both people and hardware, that are part of software engineering. Because software is more than just code. It is the systems that hold that code and the people who make it. And getting good at that is how you avoid missing deadlines and how you avoid refactoring every six months and how you avoid just a mess of uncommented hack when somebody could have actually cleaned out the cruft and written something useful. Yeah, okay. So I'm, I'm curious about the experience you had building the first software company you built, which as I understand was Yo-Yo Dine. Is that right? That's right. There were two failed software companies before that, but we shall not mention them. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, well, in 1995, I guess that's when you started Yo-Yo-Dine, what were the biggest difficulties of starting a software company, the engineering difficulties? Okay. So here's the way Yo-Yo-Dine invented ethical email. We were the first people to do non-spam email marketing. If you got today a letter in your email box from Amazon or anybody else. That's because of us. We invented that. And um, we ran the whole thing on an IBM PC for about 12 weeks, meaning that people would send us email, the PC would open it, read it, understand what it said, and wrote back. And the guy who programmed it built it as a hack. It was not a sophisticated piece of work. What we had the problem that programmers today rarely have was the internet was not designed for scale. So we had two challenges. One, the pipe, which was the fastest pipe we could buy, could not carry all the email that we were getting and sending. It was full. And that doesn't happen anymore ever. And number two is that we could break the machine that was being used if too many people touched it. So if we got 100,000 emails in a day, uh, it just melted and failed. <laughs> and now most of the heavy lifting stuff is at AWS and similar places. So you don't have to spend all your time making sure the building doesn't fall down. The building's not going to fall down today. You have to work on something different than that. Mm. Did you learn anything interesting about managing engineers or communicating with engineers? Oh, yeah. 
I learned a ton. Um, I would say the biggest mistake, which if I was doing it again, I would make again, was that the person who was running the software side of things for me, who I trusted very much, wanted to live in Boston and I needed to live in New York. So we had one office in New York with 45 people in it and one office in Boston with nine. And that's just crazy. I, the people who you hear about who have software operations offshore, I don't know how you do it because <laughs> the marketing people, the sales people, the content people, they need to keep bumping in to the software people and vice versa. That what we are doing here is trying to weave together different ways of looking at the world into a synthesized product. And it's really hard to do that if people are hundreds or thousands of miles apart. Even with Slack. Yeah, even with Slack. Um, you know, when when we built Squidoo, uh, I made the same choice again. And so we had software people in Virginia, and I was up here, and we had an editor-in-chief in California, and we only had nine people on the whole team. Uh, we built the 40th biggest website in the U.S. with nine people. Uh, and again, that's how what happens when you don't have to worry about the, the house burning down is the systems are much easier to maintain today. But mm. we still had the same challenge that the, we could make sure that the spec was truly known because it had to be in writing. But what was missing was the nuance of people being able to cycle in a, in a lean way much faster. Uh, mm. But I will put it one aside, which is I think if you have clients, the opposite is true. So at Squidoo, we did one giant project in order to pay the rent. Uh, we private labeled a version of our software. And the deal we made was uh, we said to the uh, client, it's going to cost you this much money. This is the exact spec. Any changes to the spec have to be made in writing. And any changes after we're done cost you $500 an hour. Um, and they eagerly signed on because we had a good reputation and because it was pretty inexpensive. But because we couldn't, because we didn't have any meetings after we signed on, we got the software done really fast because the spec was the spec. And then they turned around and bought, you know, an extra 3,000 hours worth of uh, tweaks to it because they ha weren't disciplined enough to design the spec right the first time. And so where programming projects usually get into trouble, in my experience, is people aren't disciplined enough to get the spec right the first time. They say, I'll know it when I see it. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe in that. I think professionals shouldn't do that. So what we did with when we first built Squidoo was we spent three months specking with, in Photoshop with graphics every one of the 150 pages that were the key part of our site. And then we went to an outside uh, job shop and said, here's the spec with pictures and files. How long will it take you to build this? And they said 90 days. And we said, and then they fully expected that there'd be all these change orders and we'd interact. We said, fine, you won't hear from us again for three months. And they didn't. And so they finished it on time because they're professionals. And we took what we got because we're professionals. And that was the core of what we built. Wow. And, and I think that discipline is missing from a lot of people who create software, and I think that's a shame. We don't build buildings, and we don't build cars by changing things all the time. We get a spec, and then they build it. And I think we ought to do the same thing with software. Mm. 
So you have a podcast that uh, I've listened to several times over the years called Startup School, uh, and I recommend any listeners to check it out. You, you talk about the dichotomy between a freelancer and an entrepreneur, and I think this is a really important distinction to draw, uh, and, and I think software engineers are often unsure where they fall uh, along this, uh, maybe you think it's a gradient, maybe you think it's a, a polar uh, ends, but um, how should a software engineer think about the landscape of freelancing versus entrepreneurship? Like maybe there's a there's a person out there uh, sitting in a cubicle at Google or Microsoft somewhere, and they're unsure if they're a freelancer or an entrepreneur. Love this question. A lot of people in your industry are swayed by the media, and the media celebrates the Zuckerbergs of the world, people who are brilliant programmers who become entrepreneurs. Let me be really clear. An entrepreneur makes money when he sleeps. She makes money when uh, she sells the company. She doesn't do the work herself. That's her job, is to find other people to do every job. That's what entrepreneurs do. Freelancers get paid when they work. Freelancers uh, do work with their own two hands, and then they get paid for it. Now, often when a freelancer tries to scale from being a freelancer to being an entrepreneur, there's more work to be done. So who do they hire? They hire the cheapest, most talented person they can find themselves. And so f- freelancers who are trying to become entrepreneurs can't decide which they are. And if they're busy hiring themselves to do the coding, you know what? They're not doing their real job, which is raising money, doing product identification, market identification, and bringing things to the world. So the discipline of being an entrepreneur, if you are a brilliant programmer, is to give up being a programmer and start being an entrepreneur instead. Mm, Interesting. Um, So in the Icarus Deception, this is a a book that you wrote that... I really enjoyed. You wrote about how Icarus was warned not to fly too close to the sun, but the cautionary tale that you stress is is equally risky, is that if you fly low, uh, then the waves will get you. And kind of the, the uh, I think the allegory you're, you're trying to draw is, uh, you know, yes, it's risky to be overambitious, but it's also risky to be underambitious. In what ways do you see engineers afflicted by the Icarus deception? Okay, so you could argue in 1975 that if you didn't have access to a mainframe computer, you had no choice but to go work for the giant military industrial contractor down the street. But now, if you have a laptop, and I'm assuming everyone listening to this does, you are connected to the very same server farms marketplaces, and financial opportunities as everyone else on earth. So the playing field has never, ever been more level. That means everything you don't build is your choice not to build it. That every connection you don't make, every generous act you don't take is on you because the doors are wide open. And so we don't get to be Dilbert anymore. We don't get to (laughs) complain about the pointy-haired boss uh, because the fact is you're the boss and you're only complaining about yourself. Okay. So you see, so like lack of autonomy maybe? Well, you know, if you're 
uh, a working stiff. You're working whatever it is, 60 hours a week in the coding farm, in the cubicle. What are you doing with the other 108 hours a week? The fact is you could code something. You could build something with utility. You could have freelance clients. You could find a partner who wants to be an entrepreneur and go for the ride of a lifetime. You could find a nonprofit that needs a map of Haiti that can be annotated in real time to identify people who need help. There's a 10,000 things you could do that would make the world a better place or help you make more money or both. Mm. And there's nothing stopping you. It's, you know, someone who doesn't have your talent can say, well, I don't feel like running a lemonade stand. I don't have enough leverage to start a business. But you do, right? And that idea that the world needs you and that you could use the most powerful tool in the history of mankind, software, to create value for you or for other people, and you're not doing it because you want to play World of Warcraft, I think it's on you. Mm. And so you talk a lot about finding the ways that you can do your best work. Uh, if, if, if a software engineer you know, decides, okay, I'm going to spend these extra 108 hours of the week doing something uh, on the side, uh, and then they start to do a project and they don't feel like super passionate about it, or they're trying to get up the passion, how do they navigate towards doing their best work? Okay, so, you know, this whole idea of doing what you love is pretty misguided in my experience. I think the happiest people I know are the people who have chosen to love what they do, which is very different. That if you grow up loving flowers, you're probably going to hate being a florist. Because florists don't deal with flowers. Florists deal with bills and angry customers and landlords. They're not sitting there all day playing with roses, That's the assistant florist's job. You need to figure out, does it give you pleasure to make a computer bend to your will? Does it give you pleasure to walk into a marketplace and change it from one thing to another? Does it give you pleasure to extract value where everyone else said there was no value before you got there? Does it give you pleasure to make other people more productive? Those are the hallmarks of a professional programmer. And it doesn't really matter whether you're dealing with moving container ships from one end of the earth or flowers. What matters is you're a software engineer and software engineers should be getting their thrills from making software do things that matter. Yeah. And I can uh, speak to that resonating with me. I mean, I didn't grow up wanting to be a software engineering podcaster, but I kind of stumbled into it and I saw it as an opportunity where I could do a good job and uh and i chose to embrace it and enjoy it and it's it's served me well um so your most recent book is called what to do when it's your turn what were you trying to convey in this book the sad truth is people don't read anymore uh bookstores are going away and the typical, if you look at the uh, data analysis of what pages people are bookmarking in their Kindles, uh, readership of nonfiction books drops off precipitously after page 10. Uh, so I don't need to write books. I don't wake up in the morning saying, it's my turn to write a book. It's my job to write a book. I only write a book if I have to, because the idea won't let me go. And the idea of the Your Turn book, which I designed and illustrated myself, is... Um, to get under people's skin, 
It is a manifesto. It is a whack upside the head. Basically, it is an argument about what it means to think and dance and dream like an artist. Because artists aren't people who work in paint. Artists are people who dance with fear. And they are people who are generous enough to live on the edge of what is possible. And my thesis is that there are far more artists in the world than we'd like to acknowledge. And that if I could make a book that on every single page would make people feel more like an artist, that felt like it was worth the journey. And then I constructed the publishing of the book, I published it myself, so that people would be encouraged to buy multi-packs, five at a time, 12 at a time, 100 at a time. Because if you buy more than one copy of a book, you're going to give it away. And that idea of it spreading sideways, person to person, really uh, resonates with me. And so far, it's working. More than 100,000 people have read it, which is pretty cool. So what I love is this urge to convince people that uh, maybe they're an artist or maybe they are an artist and they, they have an imperative to create art. Um, but one thing I have encountered is uh, I find myself in conversations with people sometimes uh, and maybe there's a contentedness about them and they're content to uh, work as uh, a corporate programmer and going home and playing World of Warcraft or whatever, kind of like you described. And oftentimes these are people that I worked with in college and I've seen their brilliance. I've seen their artistic skill. And yet somewhere along the way, they dropped that or they lost it or got driven out of them or something. But I find myself in conversations and sometimes the conversations turn almost argumentative and I find myself having to, uh, you know, scale back. So uh, I'm curious if you've if you've dealt with this and how you enter and engage in conversations with people who you really want to insist should be artistic, but you can't get through to them. Well, I guess that's my new life's work. And I would say the key thing to understand is these people are arguing with you because they are afraid. And if you've ever argued with a kid who is afraid to jump off a high diving board or argued with someone who is afraid to eat sushi for the first time or argued with someone who's afraid about anything, the argument always sounds the same. It's not a rational argument. They're putting up whatever they can think of to avoid the thing that they fear. And so that person who in the safe environment of college was aces at what he did is now in the real world and is afraid of being called out as a failure or a fraud. They like going to meetings because meetings are groups of people sitting around in a circle waiting for someone else to take responsibility. And, you know, if we look at why uh, a programming team of two so much more productive than a programming team of 12, it's because a programming team of two has no meetings. And the team of 12 is sitting around trying to get in sync, trying to become coordinated, and everyone is afraid to go first, because if you go first, if you go out on a limb, you might undermine the whole project. And so for someone to say, all right, I'm going to back off this big fancy job and do something where I can say, I made this, there's nothing but fear in that sentence. It's filled with fear. Yeah. Uh, and what I'll say is I've, I've given away both of the uh, two-pack that I, that I got to software engineers who I was trying to uh, convince of this imperative. Um, so this book is about taking your turn, and it reminds me of another book that you sometimes reference in your work called Finite and Infinite Games. 
Why is it important to see our world as an infinite game? So the the world of scarcity, the one that we grew up in, and let me be really clear, there's still scarcity in our world now. There are too many people who don't have enough food or health care or shelter. I'm not talking about that part of it. But the world of scarcity is scarce shelf space, scarce oil, scarce uh, time. In that world, uh, you play a finite game. A finite game is defined as it has rules and it has an end and it has a winner. And so if it's Chevy versus Ford, someone's going to win the next sale. Someone's going to win the market share game. But in a world of abundance, which is what the connection economy is, that if you think about Metcalfe's law, networks go up in value as more people are in on them. In that world of abundance, we can bend all of these other issues to our will. That we can, you know, Wikipedia is the result of tens of millions of hours of donated time. So in that sense, time was not constrained. Wikipedia can be as big as we want it to. We will never run out of pages. Wikipedia is an abundant software project. And as a result, it's a finite, it's an infinite game. It will never end. There is no winner. You cannot win at Wikipedia. All you can do is pay it forward and help other people pay it forward. When we can create infinite games out of software, our careers thrive and our heart sings because we are doing something without defeating somebody else. And that is a holy grail, but we can get there if we put the effort in to think hard about what network can we create that will become more valuable as more people use it. So do you think the the framework of a finite game is you're trying to capture a piece of a finite pie and the, the goal of an infinite game is to grow the pie itself? Exactly right. And um, a lot of people have trouble with this. And when you watch what goes on on the internet, when you watch Apple computer doing things right versus Apple computer doing things wrong, the difference is obvious. Every time Apple treats the world as an infinite game, we love them. And every time they try to create a closed garden and break things and make it so that you can't be interoperable, we hate them. And the problem is they're at the bridge between the finite game of the stock market and the infinite game of software. Mm. I think you actually wrote about this recently. I think you, Didn't you have a post called Peak Apple? I did. It was about two weeks ago. Okay. What were you trying to, to discuss in that post? So... You're a power user. I'm a power user. And uh, the Mac, it occurs to me as I struggle with it now. I was a beta tester in 1983. Guy Kawasaki gave me one of the first Macs. <laughs> uh, he was 26. I was 24. Uh, it got really good about three years ago. It was part of me. After 20 years, finally, we were in sync, 25 years. And now, day by day... They're making decisions that don't make it better for me, but make it more profitable for them. They're making software dumber so it'll work on iOS as well as it'll work on the Mac, nothing I asked them to do. They are uh, eliminating competition by giving things away for free that denature the industry so that other people can't possibly afford to make something else. And when you add all that up, every time I turn on my Mac, instead of saying, I feel more powerful today, I say to myself, I feel more frustrated today. And this is an interesting argument that clearly took place between software engineers, marketing people, and the finance people. 
And the challenge that Apple has, which is the challenge that lots of organizations that are public have, is there are thousands of people at Apple who make millions of dollars every time the stock goes up. And since that's the case, there's a lot of pressure to make the stock go up. And you don't make the stock go up by making the Mac a better power tool. Hmm. What did what did you say about denaturing the denaturing the industry by introducing free software? Right. So why isn't there good presentation software for the Mac? And the reason is because Keynote's free. So mm. what's the incentive to make a better alternative to Keynote? Because the number of people who are going to buy it is really low because most people are happy enough with something that's free. If Apple charged $30 for Keynote, then there'd be plenty of room for someone to make a $25 app and be really happy with the you know m- million customers they would get. Mm. Very interesting. So uh, I'd like to be to close off. To, we should talk some about this uh, advanced education program that you created recently called Alt MBA. Um, and I, I've, I think I've heard you say that you, you know, you've learned from this as much as uh, the students that you've been teaching have been learning from it. Um, what are the lessons that you've taken away from engaging with this modern workforce? Um, particularly lessons that might be uh, important to software engineers. Software engineers were some of the earliest users of MOOCs. Uh, The artificial intelligence MOOC had 100,000 software engineers sign up to take it. Uh, What's interesting is of the 100,000 people who took it, only 1,000 people graduated. Uh, And why is there a 99% dropout rate? And, And the reason is because when it gets hard and there's no social pressure, people drop out. I wanted to invent a course that was tiny, not big, only 100 people at a time, had no dropout rate, wasn't free but felt expensive, and was super intense, a four-week sprint that would change people's lives. And that's what we built. And we've run it twice. The third run is in January. Uh, And what I have learned is that people discover really fast that all that stuff they thought was important that they learned in school is trivial compared with being able to learn how to see being able to learn how to speak about what you see, being able to make change happen around you, that the software engineers who are listening to this know things that so many people need to know and want to know, but we are getting in our own way because we're filled with fear about what we're capable of. Hmm. Interesting. Um, And how many of the people that attend Alt-MBA are software engineers? I have no idea. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, okay. Well, um, I guess I'd like to close off with one kind of interesting economic question I've been thinking about. Um, do you feel that this, the fact that the costs of servers have been driven down by this, this AWS effect that we discussed earlier, do you think this has a compounding interest effect on the economy or is there a scarce number of companies that can be created with this additional server leverage? I think that we have created 1% of the number of companies that could be created, that need to be created, that will be created. Uh, These are very, very early days. That the people who grab something are going to be extremely hard to dislodge. You can't out Amazon, Amazon. You can't out Uber, Uber. But the number of networks that need to be created 
the number of opportunities we have to use software not as the end, but as the tool to a different end is compounding daily. And when you, you know, I wrote a post 15 years ago describing a possible future when I said uh, hard disk space will basically be free. Everyone will have a supercomputer in their pocket and uh, there will be Wi-Fi everywhere. I thought it was pretty cool to say those three things 15 years ago. Um, and it's true. So now that it's true, multiply by 100. Once you've got, you know, we're about to add 600 million more smartphones in India and China alone in the next two years. That's twice the population of the United States, brand new, online, ready to join one network or another. Think about the fact that it can't possibly be true that the purpose of the internet was to find out who your friends are and to watch cat videos. (laughs) There's something else possible here. And the people who are listening to this are the ones who are going to build it. Absolutely. Well, Seth Godin, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Um, I'm a longtime fan of your books. They changed the direction of my life. And I, I probably would not have started this podcast without reading your work. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for the work you do. I know it uh, requires tireless energy, and I appreciate <laughs> that you put so much into it. So thank you, Jeff. All right. Have a great day. Cheers. Cheers.